Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It is page 812 and 13 in our church Bibles. So while you're turning there, just a couple of things. Um, When we're through this morning, if you have a question about what was said or sung, we would be happy to try to answer that question for you. I'll be up here waiting and anticipating your arrival, so just keep that in mind. We're going to read from verse 23 to the end of the chapter, chapter 11, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. If you're wondering why we're on this text this morning, we have been working through 1 Corinthians since October of last year. We took breaks for Christmas and Easter and, and just maybe another thing or two, but uh, so the reason why we're here this morning in these verses, um, on this Sunday of all Sundays, I promise you it wasn't planned, just kind of worked itself out that way right before we take communion, is um, this is where we're supposed to be. So just keep that in mind as we're working through the verses there. Okay, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A person ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the Lord. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. When I come, I will give further directions. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning, and may he grant us understanding of it. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask that you would chiefly do one thing as you give us power to speak and to listen. But we would ask this morning especially that you would make the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ huge in our minds and in our understanding. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you can see, the focus of our study this morning begins in the 23rd verse until the end of the chapter. And it has, as I said, been a number of weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians 11. However, you may remember that we were learning that the church was making a horrible mess in their public worship. And particularly, if you look at your Bible that's open, verses 17 to 22, at the Lord's Supper. And so their problem is straightforward, and it will reveal itself time and time again in our studies this morning. And I make no apology. You're going to probably hear this till your face turns blue. But I think in light of what we're going to talk about, it seems absolutely necessary. Their problem is essentially this. They had forgotten, or they became unconcerned about who just leads the church and who alone may judge the church. 
So many in that church presumed that they had a Ph.D. in judging others. And, and this gave them, in their own mind, the green light to judge others in the fellowship and to measure others in the fellowship according to their own mind or according to their own convictions. And, of course, when that happens, we'll always bring division. And that was what's happening in the church. And so they were gathering together and they were taking that practice of judgmentalism and introducing it into all their church gatherings. So much so that the essence of the problem, which is given in verse 20, was that when they came to the table of the Lord, right, the Lord's table, Paul tells them, verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper you are eating. So they were gathering together as they should, but they were not doing things in those gatherings um, that were correct. And those things then that they should have not been doing was so far removed from the message and the meaning of the Lord's table, they were actually doing harm to the Lord's table. That's verse 20. And you can see in verse 22, they were despising the church, which means they were despising the person and work of Jesus Christ because it was his church. And they were humiliating other brothers and sisters by their judgmentalism. In other words, Paul was saying, you know what, your, meeting, your meetings, they don't really matter. So yes, they were externally present, but internally they were wicked. And so serious is Paul in letting his readers know that this is not some marginal issue, is made clear in this dramatic, and some would say almost archaic statement in verse 30. Do you see it there if your Bible's open? That is why some of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, you've died. And to some, that might sound like Old Testament talk and not, not New Testament talk. Some might say, wait a minute, I thought God stopped doing that kind of thing a long time ago. Nevertheless, what Paul is saying is that this wickedness and this sickness and actual death that had come into that church is direct, directly related in many in their behavior in public worship at the Lord's Supper. Now, we need to think about that, don't we? So Paul, having told them in verses 17 to 22 what ought not to be happening at the Lord's Supper, then begins in verses 23 and following to tell them what must be happening at the Lord's Supper. And that takes us right then to our first point this morning, the institution of communion. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Now, whether Paul received this as direct revelation from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, or from the mouth of other disciples of Jesus Christ, is not really the issue here. We do know that this letter was more than likely written before any of the Gospels were, which would make the verses here the first biblical record of the Lord's Supper that we would have. In fact, we are given direct quotes from Jesus in verses 24 and 25. Regardless, Paul is simply claiming the direct authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his instruction to them. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus said to do this this way, right? Jesus said to do this, and this is how you do it. And this becomes so very important because this happens time and time again in the church of Jesus Christ. We are doing something that the Lord Jesus Christ said to do, but we're doing it in our own way with our own mind. Subsequently, we're doing it, but we're making a bad job of it. And that was the case in Corinth. The Corinthian church they were gathering together. They arranged the tables and the chairs. They had the buffet line ready for the Lord's Supper. But in actual fact, they were spoiling it. Therefore, what Paul tells them is the uninterrupted and uninterfered with words of Jesus himself. In essence, 
the authority of Jesus Christ is over the meal, mind your manners, rend your heart, zip your lip, and do what Jesus says. And, and here we are again. Now, this is so very important. I think this might be a theme for the whole year for us as a church for 2016. There's a, there's a difficulty in the church. How does Paul solve it? I mean, you, you see this. How does he solve it? He solves it with theology. In fact, he's going to solve it with the gospel. In, in a few weeks, I think at the end of January, we're going to take either one or two Sundays, and we're going to talk about giving. And so far in all my studies in the New Testament, Paul takes the gospel and he uses the gospel as the basis for giving. That's how he starts with it. That's how he tackles that problem. So if we ask the question, when did this institution take place? You'll notice the Lord's Supper took place on the night he was betrayed. Okay, so Paul gives us an historical setting, right? Many of the believers would not have known this because, as I said, the Gospels were not written, so this would have been new to them. Now, Paul could have used a whole lot of other indicators to tell them when the supper took place. He could have said at the time they were celebrating the Passover. He could have said when they were in the upper room, but he didn't do that. He said on the night Jesus Christ was betrayed. Why that indicator? Right? Why did he say it that way? Well, again, as I said already, we're going to refer to this a number of times, but we need to do this. Many in the church in Corinth had that terrific problem of judging others in the family of God. They judged them, and thus they would be divided from them, especially at the Lord's Supper, so they would not sit with them as a sign of their displeasure. They would not wait for them at mealtime as a sign of their superiority. But on the very night Jesus Christ was betrayed which began the institution of the Lord's Supper, we see this wonderful jewel in the midst of a filthy backdrop, right? In the midst of the kingdom of evils, worse, the crucifixion of God's Son on the cross, God is going to accomplish His absolute best, the sacrificial redemption of the world through that cross, which began on the very night He was betrayed, right? A night which began to make provision for humanity's desperately needed forgiveness, and his table wasn't very pretty in the sense that that table wasn't loaded with superstars. Everyone at the table at that night, in the hour of Jesus Christ's greatest need, in some form or fashion, would abandon him, and of course Judas would betray him. Question, will Jesus still eat with these sinners? Answer, yes he will. Question, does he stop the meal? Answer, no, he proceeds with the meal. Why does he proceed with the meal? Because the meal, as we'll learn, has a message. People at that table who genuinely belong to Jesus are accepted, not because they're perfect, not because they're doing everything right, not because they don't have any faults. They're accepted because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. However, Judas and his betrayal in some measure is a reflection of the betrayal that was going on in the Corinthian church, right? Judas, in his betrayal of Jesus, was doing what? He was judging Jesus. Jesus, you're not what I thought you were. You're not the Messiah that I thought I wanted. So Judas was basing his judgment on Jesus on what? Based on his own ideas of what a Messiah should and should not be. What was happening in the Corinthian church? 
They were sitting there and they were judging everybody and using that um, institution of grace, making a mess of it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Judas, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus watched for an opportunity to hand him, Judas, excuse me, watched for an opportunity to hand him over, right? So what was Jesus, Judas saying? He was saying, this Jesus, he really isn't anybody um, um, great. And again, what was the chief problem in Corinth? They were judging others in the fellowship, thereby they were causing schisms, and especially in the most sacred of settings instituted by Jesus Christ himself to proclaim his death, to reveal his grace, the supper. Okay? So when was the supper instituted? On the night he was betrayed. Does that matter? Oh yeah, it matters. Secondly, how was the supper instituted? Well, you see it there, verse 23b. It involved uh, thanksgiving, uh, participation, and the mind. Verse 23b, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. This is um, ekraistio, the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. Jesus gave thanks and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you, okay? Uh, Again, why for you and why for me? Why was Jesus thanking God for his body? Well, because you and I can't be forgiven. You and I can't know God. You and I can't have eternal life. You and I can't have any lasting peace. You and I can't have his wisdom. You and I cannot genuinely enjoy and love each other's company in the fellowship. You and I cannot have true and lasting and beautiful communion with God unless Jesus gives his body. So the son says, thank you, Father, for this bread, which is a picture of my body. Verse 24b, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, do this. Participation in the institution of the supper is not an option for the Christian. It is necessity. It is privilege. Sometimes I think the Protestant church, in reaction to Catholicism, we try to uh, downplay the Lord's Supper. We shouldn't do that. Paul's not doing that. And Jesus also said, verse 24b, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, remembrance of me. What does that mean? Well, in the mind of a first century Jew, which Jesus was, this has the idea of not simply bringing something uh, to mind in some kind of vague sense. It actually means to go back in one's mind and recapture as much of the reality and the significance of the event or the experience that you possibly can. That's what the word indicates. This is why the Bible, listen carefully, this is why the Bible gives us so much information about the life of Jesus, but especially about the death of Jesus. Right, almost 25, 30% of each gospel concentrates on the last week of Jesus' life. Why is that the case? Why so many words? So that we can know the, the full story of our redemption. I think I've told you this before, but some of you are new. You might not know this. But I was taught by a friend that each of my wedding anniversaries, I should spend about 30 minutes just thinking about my wife. And after I spent about 30 minutes thinking about her, I should pray for her and then write her a note. And I've done that for years now. It's it's the best thing I've ever done. It it makes me appreciate her more. It's the same thing here. None of us were there on the night of Christ's betrayal and, and on the day of his death. We weren't there. So for us to remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross 
calls for us to know our Gospels, understand what it means and why it matters. In other words, I think what Paul is saying, he wants our thinking to be saturated by the Gospel. So, so if we are thinking Gospel thoughts, and if our um, thinking is saturated by the Gospel, when someone gets it wrong, we don't say, Aha! Gotcha! It's not the Gospel. We say, there but for the grace of God go I. And we say, oh God, please help them. Right? Elizabeth Clefane, she knew this. She wrote this hymn. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. How foolish many of the Corinthians in that church were behaving. They had forgotten what redemption means and how it took place. They had forgotten that it was also their sin that placed Christ on that cross. They had forgotten that they were sinners as well. They had forgotten that in Christ all believers, listen carefully, in Christ all believers, rich or poor, strong or weak, the good ones, the bad ones, the gifted ones, the not so gifted ones, the ones that are just hanging on for dear life have equal status before a holy God. So how could they judge and why would they feed division in light of that gospel of grace? Thirdly, what did the supper involve? Okay, when did it take place? On the night Christ was betrayed. How was it instituted? With the prayer of thanks, participation, and, and remembrance. Deep thoughts called for. Okay, what did the supper involve? Well, here we would do well to remember the original context on that night. It was a, it was a Passover meal. You can read of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, and the first 14 verses will set you on your way. But the summary statement goes like this. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. So the people of God under the old covenant would celebrate annually in a meal their deliverance from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. They would recall the night when obedience to God's command from his servant Moses, they had taken the blood from the unblemished lamb that was slain and spread it on the doorpost and lintels of their home. And where the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that home, and the firstborn of that home was left unharmed. And still to this day, many Jewish people will reflect and they will celebrate this feast. And the wonder of the fact, and here we are, the shedding of the blood of the lamb, there was no destruction of death by the hand of God's messenger. And that, for them, was a physical but temporal deliverance. And it's been replaced by Christ in a spiritual and eternal deliverance. The bread, his body, okay? Is the bread literally the body of Jesus Christ? Well, no. Well, how do you know? Well, because he was holding the bread in his hand when he broke it. Thus, by holding the bread in his hand, Christ distinguished between the physical body, his physical body, and the emblem of bread, which pictures the giving of his body for sin. Therefore, to say that Christ was saying that they were going to literally eat him has no foundation in the institution of the supper itself. And what's true for the bread is true for the cup. He took the cup in his hands, revealing the difference between the emblem and the sacrifice. But, and listen carefully, we learn this in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Jesus Christ is present at the supper in a unique and unrepeatable way when his church receives it. 
He's not present in the blood, or excuse me, bread. He's not present in the cup. He's pictured in the bread. He's pictured in the cup, but he's present with his people in a way that he's not present every other day of the week. We need to understand that. Verse 25, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, The cup in the old covenant was, again, a temporal deliverance. And it needed to be repeated again and again. The priest whose work was never finished. But here's the significance. In the new covenant, and this cup, which is the essence of the gospel, every time we take communion, the gospel is expounded for us. It, it's, it's dramatized for us. We give our minds to its remembrance. So here we are this morning. We're mindful of our guilt. We're mindful of the fact that we have broken God's law. Mindful of the fact that there's dirt and disgrace. And if, if it ever got out, there would be massive embarrassment for many of us. And many people have gone from place to place. And they go from church to church, conference to conference. They try to do work to work, process to process, longing and hoping that they can be finally cleansed from the guilt they feel of their sin. And perhaps for a moment or two, people feel okay, right? They do something really good for Jesus. And they've done something really good. They're like, oh, good, I'm, I'm good now with God. Or maybe someone has pronounced something over you. Or again, you have done uh, some great deed. Or you've had some dramatic religious experience. And we think that peace with God can be found that way. But after all that foolishness wears off, and it will wear off, we are cast back down into the depths of despair. Never honestly knowing peace Lasting peace with God. Because we base our peace only on what we can do, only on what we have done or haven't done or some experience that we have. Until the day dawns on us. Suddenly the the gates of heaven are flung open. And we understand, as the Spirit of God helps us understand, uh, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned Christ stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So when we drink the cup, knowing that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath fully and completely, in that awareness we are expressing and we are participating in the blessings and the benefits of Christ's atoning worth and death. And congregation, we need to grow in that grace. We need to grow in that grace. So let me ask you this morning. Have you plunged yourself into this reality when you participate in the supper? You can do it. It's more than a ceremony. It's more than just some religious ritual. And again, let me remind you of the context in these verses. Where the judgmental Corinthian Christians would by lip and life reveal that we do not accept you. Because you're not measuring up to our standards. So what would be the reply? Romans 8, who can bring any charge against you? You see, if God in Christ cannot bring a charge, who are you, judgmental person? Who are you? Who do you think you are? You see, 
That's the institution of communion. Secondly, the proclamation in communion, verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you kata angelo, you're actually preaching the gospel. That's the word. You are proclaiming, preaching the death of Jesus Christ when you receive communion. So communion is not a reenactment of the death of Jesus Christ. Communion is a proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ. So that every time we receive communion, every time we eat the bread, and every time we take the cup, we are proclaiming, we are preaching the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, the significance of the gospel, and the wonder of his atoning sacrifice for sin. Every time. And we keep doing it, verse 26, whenever you can. Right? Weekly, monthly, quarterly, Churches have their own ways to understand this. Verse 26, until Jesus comes. Listen to your Bible. This is the words of Jesus in Matthew 26. Jesus, this is post-resurrection, pre-ascension to his disciples. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Right? We're not going to do this again until, until we're together. But in the meantime, verse 26... You keep doing this, final phrase, until I come. So in the Jewish Passover meal, oftentimes the people sharing the meal together, they would end their occasion by saying, perhaps next year in Jerusalem, right? Next year we'll have this Passover in Jerusalem. Now, when we come together at the Lord's Supper, we have that same kind of anticipation. There's going to be a morning when this would be the last time forever that we do this. And then some, sometime after that, the trumpet's going to blow, and here we go, and we will be with Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb forever and forever. You see, that's what happens. That's the anticipation of that meal. That takes us to our final point. Verse 27, explanation. Now, I want you to see why it's so important that we keep these verses in its context and don't try to just make this an exposition of how to do communion correctly. Because when we understand it, we begin to see how hideous it was that some in the Corinthian church were abusing things so badly. The wonder what Jesus Christ had accomplished in paying the penalty of our sin was being diminished by their judging. The eternal plan of God to rescue men and women, which is celebrated and remembered and proclaimed, which is the basis of a church's unity at the supper, was being usurped by lawless individuals who in their judgmentalism were mocking and they were reducing grace. Which is why Paul says what he says. Verse 27, therefore, right? He links the previous verses to this explanation. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So the obvious question is, what does it mean to participate in an unworthy manner? Well, again, remember the context. Some in the church were dividing by their judging. So Paul says, verse 27, if you're taking bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, in other words, if you were ignoring the free grace of God in Christ, specifically in what his death achieved and what the table was proclaiming, forgiveness... Unity in Christ, all one in Christ. If you're doing that, you're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. 
if we do not approach the table as unworthy of God's grace, but so thankful for it, we're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. In other words, listen carefully. To take communion in an unworthy manner is to ignore gospel realities, to ignore gospel unity, to harbor animosity towards our brothers and sisters in the church, and so weaken our felt need of the gospel. Which is why Paul says what he says, verse 28. We ought to examine ourselves. Again, what was the problem in the Corinthian church? Oh, they were examining people. They just weren't examining themselves. They were examining everyone else. And by the way, the word examine is actually test. So these people gave their own test in the context of grace at the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is how it worked out. You don't belong here. You're not good enough. You're not doing right. And they expressed this internally and externally. I will divide myself from you. I won't sit with you at mealtime. Therefore, I won't talk with you at mealtime. And I'll eat the supper without waiting for you. I gave you my test. You did not pass my test. So be gone. You're not what I thought it. You're not what I like. So be gone. And again, they weren't literally doing this. They were doing it internally, and it was working itself out externally. But if you think about it in the, in the context of the family of God, where is the gospel in that? Where is it? I'm not going to fellowship with you because you're not meeting my standard. I mean, what if Christ did that to us? So we do not examine others, Paul says, but we do examine ourselves. And I hope when you examine yourself, you're not trying to search for perfection. And I hope you're not trying to self-justify your way to the table in order that you deserve to take communion. How could that be? And again, where is the gospel in that? Therefore, to examine ourselves, what we're doing is we're finding our sin and we're confessing our sin. We acknowledge our unworthiness to receive the bread and the cup, but we thank God for Jesus because Jesus makes us worthy. And so we thank God for his son and his body and his blood and his people. And we say something like, Jesus, I know I don't deserve grace. I know me. It's not so good. But I thank you that you've given me grace and your atoning death. And in Christ, and only in Christ, I am perfect, though I still struggle with indwelling sin. And this supper, then, is the picture of the one who gave himself up for my sin. Therefore, if the table of Christ was only for perfect people, no one could approach it. And that makes 29 make a whole lot of sense, right? If we don't examine ourselves in the way described Verse 29, without recognizing the body of the Lord, without recognizing the gospel, we eat and drink judgment on them, on ourselves. Now listen carefully. In the context of the supper, to judge others invites God's judgment on us. To not examine ourselves, verses 28 and 29, also invites God's judgment on us. Therefore, if we have a sensible and honest gospel-centered examination of ourselves at this table, this will preserve us from God's judgment. But if we have an absence of self-examination 
if we come to the table all loosey-goosey, let's get this done, or as in the case of the Corinth, we're just examining others and our judgment upon them, we invite God's judgment on us. His judgment. Okay, not to be eternally condemned, not for the believer, but for God to preserve the body and for God to sanctify the body. And this is what I mean. And this is why verse 30 is so striking. This is where I would really, really pay attention. Many in the church were not coming to the Lord's table as sinners saved by grace. They were not examining themselves, but they were judging others, causing division at the table of the Lord. But worse, they were mocking the gospel of Christ. They were mocking the free grace of God in Christ. And that sets God off to divine discipline, right? You're not going to do that. I'm not going to let you do that. Verse 30, that's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now apparently something was going on. Obviously God had sent what seemed like a plague to them in his discipline. Weakness, sickness, and death was there. They didn't understand it. And Paul gives direct revelation This is happening because of your abuse at the Lord's table. You have offended God. Now, I understand that might be hard for some of us to process, especially in our 21st century world. As soon as last Sunday was done, my wife and I were driving home, and I said, you know, this is what I have to say next Sunday. And I said, what do you think about that, this whole verse 30 thing? And I told her what verse 30 was. And she said to me, in all her lovely wisdom, she said, you know, there's so many things that aren't sacred anymore. I I don't know what to say to you. Right? It's so hard to find the sacred in things these days. But apparently, in the mind of God, this supper is sacred. And the key then to understanding this is verse 31, right? If they, look at your Bible, if they would have simply judged themselves, right, and not others, then they would not have come under this horrible discipline. But they did not do that. They had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten the gospel that says we are all sinners who deserve nothing but death, but Jesus has paid our penalty by his death. Hallelujah, take the bread. Hallelujah, take the cup. So then this is a divine discipline meant to preserve the purity of the Lord's table and the message of the Lord's table on on two, two levels. Level one. Get them away from the fellowship temporarily, right? If you're weak and sick, usually you stay at home. Number two, get them away from the table permanently. Death. In other words, apparently God will intervene in his church radically at times in order to prevent the person from further sin. The sin of scandalizing the gospel because of failing to judge themselves correctly, yet still being willing to play God and judge others. And that's why verse 32 is there. When we are judged in this way by the Lord, verse 32, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's just the the persevering power of God's grace, even unto death, to prevent the believer from further sin. That's what's happening. This is what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it's better to go to heaven with one eye than both eyes and go to hell. Right? This is being kept from condemnation by decree. 
This is being kept from condemnation by divine intervention. God pulls them out of the fellowship. Don't mess with my grace. Pictured at the table, pointing to the cross, declaring my love for sinners and my justice to pay, my, to pay your debt of sin by the giving of my son. That's, that's what is happening. But if you would play God and you would judge others at my table, failing to see your sin, then divine discipline will come. You see, loved ones, this is the difference between Christianity and religion. This is the difference between cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. This is the difference between conservative Christianity or liberal Christianity and biblical Christianity. The elitism that could infect any church is countered by divine discipline to summon the church to preserve the integrity of the Lord's Supper and the message of the gospel. That's why this is so striking. So then Paul concludes, verse 33, wait for others at the table. And in the sharing, we are saying that that we are all accepted by God's family, by God's grace, through Christ's suffering, pictured at the table. And verse 31, no one then will be judged by God in that context because no one is judging each other, just themselves, as they should. We're going to take communion now. So let's pray. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would help us to understand these things. If we have questions, Father, may we find answers. May you bless us now as we prepare to sing a song of worship to you and thanksgiving before we take communion. Amen.